You are listening to the Hevein Podcast, where scholarly research into the Hebrew Bible and ancient Near East is brought directly to you. Welcome back, everyone, to the Hebein Podcast. Megan and I recently sat down with Dr. Eckhart Fromm to discuss the Old Testament and its relationship to the ancient Near East. Enjoy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Digital Hammurabi. I'm your host, Megan Lewis, and today I'm joined by a very special guest, Dr. Eckhart Fromm of Yale University. Dr. Fromm received his PhD from the University of Göttingen in 1996, his Halibutation from Heidelberg University in 2007, and is a professor of Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations at Yale. Dr. Fromm has written and edited numerous academic works, including A Companion to Assyria and Ancient Mesopotamia Speaks, highlights of the Babylonian Yale collection. And he's also the founder and director of the Cuneiform Commentaries Project, an online database of Babylonian and Assyrian text commentaries. He's very kindly agreed to talk to us today about the Bible's ancient Near Eastern context. Dr. Fromm, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Megan, for having me. Of course, it's my pleasure. Um, so before we dive into today's topic of discussion, would you mind just briefly telling the audience how you got into the field of Assyriology? Yeah, I mean, it's not that this was my kindergarten plan, uh, so to speak. I actually wanted to become a sportscaster on the radio, though not a stream, <laughs> so no. Um, but that didn't work out. Uh, and as it then happened, um, while in high school, I had the opportunity to take a course in Biblical Hebrew, not because I was particularly religious, but really out of curiosity. That was a language that was really different from anything I'd uh, learned until then. And through that chorus, I actually realized that there was this whole world of the ancient Near East, uh, a world of 3,500 years of, of written documentation uh, on all sorts of different things um, that altogether seemed not very uh, much explored yet. And, and while I, of course, when I started on this, uh, I had no real idea how it would be, I did sort of realize there was still a lot to be done. And my work was then initially not in any way on the Hebrew Bible. And I should say that right away, I in approach the Bible here and in general when I write about it as a what I would call an informed outsider. I have no, uh, let's say, in for, I have no formal university training um, and therefore cannot speak uh, with full authority, let's say, on, on, on the redaction layers of biblical text and such things. But I would say, still say that... Uh, Sociologists like me have something to say about the Hebrew Bible. I got into, in, I got interested in, in in actually looking at the Hebrew Bible uh, through the lenses of the engineers. In fact, by by chance, uh, some point early in the two thousands, I got an invitation to speak about the city of Asher in and the God Asher in the Hebrew Bible. And as I later learned, I had received that invitation um, by mistake. It was actually meant. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll do it. And um, well, I realized, among other things, and I thought it was quite exciting in a way that neither the city nor the god Asher were ever mentioned in the Hebrew Bible. That in and of itself struck me as rather remarkable. And ever since I uh, actually prepared that very lecture, I have uh, at least sort of on the sideline written about it, worked a lot it on, on various aspects of the Hebrew Bible in its ancient Eastern setting. And you, you teach um, an undergraduate, I believe, uh, course at Yale on this topic. Is it a, a very popular course? Do you get a lot of um, students attending? No, I wouldn't say really it's popular. And here, I mean, maybe that has to do with uh, my, my teaching style, not, not <laughs> fully up to it. But I think it's also sort of kind of interesting that it isn't as popular as such a course, I think, would have been 
100 years ago or, or, or 120 years ago. And when this issue of the Hebrew Bible in ancient Eastern, Eastern setting was really so front news. So after mm-hmm. the discovery of um, the ancient sites of Assyria and Babylonia, especially the uh, famous library of Ashurbanipal in Nineveh in the mid um, 19th century, um, it was soon realized that um, what came to uh, to the fore here was was the world of ancient Mesopotamia speaking again on its own and in its own terms, and in a way talking back to the Bible up to then for thousands of years, ever since the last cuneiform tablet had been written. All that was known about Mesopotamia essentially came from the Bible itself and to some extent from classical historians. Uh, but there wasn't anything from Assyria or Babylonia. And now suddenly, uh, within a few decades, uh, tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of, of written documents and many other sources were suddenly available. And um, one could engage in a dialogue here between the biblical world and the Hebrew Bible on one hand and the world of Mesopotamia and the text from Mesopotamia on the other. And that dialogue is sort of what, what is kind of interesting. And it is a dialogue full of tension which was initially actually perceived with um, some anxiety and I think is still perceived with some anxiety, leading sort of to, to political, uh, well, uh, not unrest, but, 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 but drama, I would say. I mean, the British Prime Minister Gladstone attended the lecture given by George Smith on his discovery of the flood tablet of the Gilgamesh epic, which presents a story of the, of the flood that is very similar to the one found in the Bible, but different. And of course, that raised the question, well, is the biblical story derivative and therefore perhaps less authoritative? Also, later in Germany, uh, the German Kaiser uh, around 1900 uh, very much sort of fell uh, for this idea of pan-Babylonism, that everything important comes from Babylonia, uh, which led to clashes with the Protestant um, establishment. So this was all very politicized. And then after World War I, uh, there was, a, uh, well, a movement away from, from these approaches often marked by a certain degree of parallelomania. So people were looking for parallels all over the place. Everything mm-hmm. they found was just the same. And uh, in the 1920s, a new paradigm essentially established itself that you study ancient civilizations in their own right. So we shouldn't really look at Mesopotamia through biblical lenses and vice versa. And that was then indeed the approach for several decades. But in recent decades, maybe because we are now again living in a more global age, uh, interest in ancient Mesopotamia um, as a source for, well, uh, understanding the Bible has, I think, increased again. And scholars have worked on it again. And I think for good reasons, um, it is always always interesting compare. I think we learn a lot by comparison. This comparison, however, shouldn't just be equating and saying something is earlier than something else or something is just modeled on something. What interests me particularly, I do look for parallels if you wish, but what I find find most interesting when doing so is how are these models actually adapted? What's different Mm. in the Bible? How does the Bible deal with the materials that it does find in ancient Mesopotamia and transform these materials? And how does it cope with the historical realities? And you have to imagine that the uh, first texts produced um, that eventually made it into the collection that is the Hebrew Bible uh, emerged in this political context of succeeding empires. First, the Assyrian Empire, 
uh, up to 612 BCE, then the Neo-Babylonian Empire uh, until 539 BCE when the Judeans uh, were in exile in Babylon, of course, a traumatic and very important phase uh, and probably the one where um, contacts between well, is the world of Israel and the world of Mesopotamia were closest, and then after that, the Achaemenid and then the Seleucid Empire. So um, these encounters with empire, I think, were also extremely important for the outlook uh, that you find, the theological outlook that you find in the Bible, kind of transformation you can see of uh, political ideology into the theology, if you wish. I think that is something we, we can only understand, actually, when we really approach the Hebrew Bible from this um, comparative perspective. Mm -hmm. But uh, you asked about the class, and I still feel like we are living now in a time where, on one hand, a lot of people sort of are religiously illiterate, know nothing really at all anymore about religion, and another part is, is essentially worried about any kind of impinging on religious belief and, and fundamentally uh, approach sacred text from a more or less fundamentalist perspective. Um, and those people are worried about these kinds of questions. So within that kind of scenario, it's it's not so easy, I think, to, um, to approach this from a scholarly point of view. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would also say, I mean, the Hebrew Bible is probably the most important book ever written, ever, that ever came into being. And um, Clemenceau once said that war is too important to leave it to the generals, and I would say the Hebrew Bible is too important to leave it entirely to the religious. So that is also part of my own approach here. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, Megan will continue the interview Dr. Eckhart from. Stay with us. Here at Digital Hammurabi, we believe that everyone should have access to the amazing information and discoveries that come from the ancient world. That's why we founded HAPS, Humans Against Poor Scholarship, a nonprofit organization that provides students of the ancient world with opportunities and funding to bring groundbreaking research directly to you. Why not consider becoming a patron so that the mysteries of the ancient past can be brought into the 21st century? See digitalhammurabi.com for more details. That's digital, H-A-M-M-U-R-A-B-I.com. I, I would, I have to say that the lack of interest does surprise me because um, some of the most popular material that, that we have, are our most well-attended interviews generally are those that deal with the Bible, especially the Bible in relation to Mesopotamia and and looking at um, how the biblical scholars, like you said, took Mesopotamian texts and tropes and themes and kind of reworked them um, for their own purposes. Uh, But I I do think you make an excellent point of people being um, illiterate with regards to their own religious text and also being quite uncomfortable um, when they find these um, parallel similarities when they realize that the Bible actually is in conversation with a much wider literary tradition than, than we have preserved just in that one collection of, of, of texts um, in the Hebrew Bible. Um, So could you talk a little bit about um, how Israel and Judah's kind of existence on maybe the periphery of 
these big Mesopotamian empires may have uh, influenced uh, or gave rise to some of the the texts that we now have in the Hebrew Bible? Yeah. Um, so I would, I mean, first of all, I think it's important to keep in mind that much of what the Bible really talks about is is this very time of these these empires that I mentioned. So there's a lot in in two kings about about the Assyrians, about the Babylonians, um, and then in later books you find the Persians and so on. So this is really the environment where the earliest um, well books of the Bible or the earliest forms of those books were composed. Anything about earlier history is probably to a significant extent legendary. So there is not a single a king, ancient Near Eastern king or Egyptian king, uh, mentioned from the third or second millennium in the Hebrew Bible, perhaps with the exception of Genesis 14, where Amraphel, maybe Hammurabi, I mentioned that because you know the digital Hammurabi, <laughs> so uh, that's still debated. But if that is the case, then they would have encountered Hammurabi through the later tradition. Hammurabi was a figure or not only of history, but also of memory. He continued to play an important role uh, throughout uh, Mesopotamian uh, literary history, so to speak. Um, so I would say, as far as the Assyrian Empire is concerned, um, it was probably mostly the uh, political impact that empire had that shaped uh, certain books of the Bible, and not so much perhaps at that point the uh, well cuneiform texts that were adapted by biblical authors, even though to some extent they may have that may have happened as well. Um, but this is the time um, sort of between the 8th century and the uh, mid-7th uh, century, when uh, both the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah really become into the orbit of Assyria. Um, and Israel is eventually, um, the kingdom of Israel is eventually uh, destroyed by uh, Assyria and um, is divided up into, into provinces, including the province Samaria, the city of Samaria is conquered in 722 and 700 BCE. Um, and that happened, uh, the 720 uh, conquest and, and the turning of Samaria into a province uh, under the Assyrian king Sargon. And what I believe, and that's not my idea, it was uh, an idea that uh, scholars had early on, uh, among other things, for example, is that um, there is a sort of mocking dirge about the death of the king of Babel in uh, the book of Isaiah, uh, Isaiah 14 which sort of pokes fun at a king, um, a Mesopotamian king, who had tried to conquer the world, but then died on the battlefield without his body being buried. And that song, for example, I would say, was most likely written in response to the death of the Assyrian king Sargon in 705, that very king who had actually conquered Samaria. Um, and it's not surprising that uh, biblical authors would have had an interest in depicting that king as someone who had a really bad end because they were not too fond of this guy for obvious mm -hmm. reasons. Um, and uh, so they they kind of described the end of that king in a somewhat triumphalist way. Um, and um, Sargon did actually die that very death. Uh, he did go on a campaign in 705 to the land of Tabal in Anatolia, and on that campaign, uh, the Assyrian uh, military camp was assaulted by the enemy. Uh, and uh, as we know from Assyrian cuneiform texts, the body of the king was actually taken away, and it wasn't possible to bury uh, the king, which was really bad because people were very afraid of 
of uh, ghosts of dead people who haven't been properly buried uh, haunting the living and with a powerful man like Sargon, the most powerful man of his time, of course, that fear must have been particularly intense. So you have a discourse on that death, even in Missouri itself. And um, I've pointed out myself that in 705, just uh, about um, a week before the accession of uh, Sargon's successor, a scholar in the city of Calho in Assyria copied the 12th tablet of the Gilgamesh epic, which deals at the end with death scenarios of various people. And the very last are that uh, someone isn't being properly buried and dies in, uh, on, in battle. And I'm sure that this copy of the 12th tablet of the Gilgamesh epic was, was produced with the fate of Sargon in mind. And in Israel, the reaction was just one very different, of course. In Assyria, it was traumatic. In Israel, in this case, it was sort of good news that this king had died. But mm -hmm. um, it didn't really change the overall trajectory of history, of course, because the Assyrians continued to, um, well, to, to get back to the Levant and to... Uh, to, to Israel and then also to Judah. So in 701, the Assyrian king Sennacherib attacked uh, Jerusalem. He, he conquered large parts of Judah. He did not actually, and that's important, he did not conquer Jerusalem. And he doesn't claim he did in his own inscriptions. Um, but he imposed a heavy tribute on Hezekiah, the king of Jerusalem at that time, and significantly um, well, made his, his land, the kingdom of Judah, significantly smaller. So here we actually have a case where we can uh, really uh, easily compare the Assyrian report of that campaign against Judah and other places in the Levant with the one in the Bible. And what we find is on one hand, uh, really quite pronounced parallels. So for example, one that has been observed ever since these annals were published by the annals of Sennacherib about this event, is that uh, Sennacherib claims in his own inscriptions to have uh, taken a tribute of 30 talents of gold from Hezekiah. And that is exactly the same number that's also managed, mentioned in the Bible. So here we would have a case where the Bible turns out to be historically remarkably, remarkably accurate. But then there is, of course, the fact that the Bible is not um, history writing. The Bible has a very clear theological agenda. And so the Assyrian assault in the end is presented in the Bible as a great defeat of Assyria. In the end, the Bible claims the angel of the Lord cut down 185,000 Assyrian soldiers and the Assyrians had to retreat and Hezekiah is this great heroic king who, who saves Judah. And that is, of course, not really historically accurate. Probably the Assyrians just didn't um, come to an end with their assault on Jerusalem because it didn't make sense to invest too many troops and so on. And so they were happy with just having Hezekiah as a um, as a vessel king, which he seems to have been ever since then. And so was his um, son and successor Manasseh. And um, well, one famous um, thing that then might have happened and that had a big impact on biblical theology and um, especially on the book of Deuteronomy uh, was that it seems that the Assyrians would impose loyalty oaths, uh, the Assyrian kings would impose loyalty oaths on regular occasions, especially when a new king would come into office, both on their own subjects within Assyria and on all the elite members of the of the elites in, um, well, the vassal states in the provinces all over the place. And fundamentally, these were these were these these these, these loyalty oaths are recorded in large tablets, um, which were displayed in temples. Mm -hmm. 
And what has been observed ever since the first of these loyalty uh, oath tablets were discovered in the 1950s in the Assyrian uh, city of Kalko is that uh, they have interesting parallels with the book of Deuteronomy, uh, on, uh, especially in the curse section. So these loyalty oaths end with uh, curse sections mentioning the terrible things that will happen when you are not loyal to the Assyrian king. And there's one sequence where um, they first refer to um, I don't remember it exactly. I think uh, Shamash taking away your eyesight and then seen uh, giving you ulcers, uh, skin disease, and then eventually Ishtar, um, the goddess of love, uh, mm, prompting your wife to lie in the lap of another man. And exactly the same um, curses, but of course, without these deities mentioned, because in the Bible, everything, of course, becomes monotheistic, mm-hmm. uh, are mentioned in the same sequence also in the curse section of the book of Deuteronomy. And then, of course, you have the kind of, well, if you wish, loyalty oaths. But what is striking about the book of Deuteronomy, of course, is the fact that the loyalty oaths there are not to the Assyrian king. They are to God. So your loyalty in Deuteronomy is supposed to be given to God. Um, But otherwise, for example, there's a passage about um, prophets and dream interpreters uh, possibly... um, not being loyal um, either to the king in the Assyrian version or to God in uh, the biblical version. And it's very similar in both cases. So it looks like that possibly after the Assyrian um, power had eventually in the second half of the 7th century BCE become less pronounced, that these loyalty oaths, which most likely the Judeans in Jerusalem also had to swear and tablets would have existed possibly in Aramaic translations, were used by uh, priests and scholars in Jerusalem uh, to create a completely new text, namely the earliest version of Deuteronomy, um, which was then reprojected to the time of Moses, much earlier times. But there is in 2 Kings uh, 22, there is a, a passage where Hilkiah, the high priest uh, of the Judean king, uh, Josiah, finds an old book of the law and um, then starts to um, unify the cult. Everything has to be in Jerusalem and only one God can be, can be, can be worshipped. This is very much in line with Deuteronomy. And it would seem as though, and that has been argued already in the beginning of the 19th century, that um, what's described here is actually the discovery of Deuteronomy. And what many now believe is that uh, there was no real discovery. It was an attempt of creating a tradition. The book was newly produced at that time, but of course it had to be divinely inspired. Therefore, it was reprojected into the earliest times, and therefore there had to be a story about this book having been found in this later context. So that would be an example of this adaptation of um, Mesopotamian ideology, in this case, royal ideology, Mm-hmm. Um, but for a very different purpose. And some uh, Hebrew Bible scholars have actually pointed out that, if you wish, this is an act of democratization. It's anti-royal. And it really is. When you read these passages in Deuteronomy, what you find is that, uh, for example, it says that the Israelites can have a king, okay. But if they have a king, then that king cannot have too many horses and too many too many women. So mm-hmm. all those perks that come with kingship, whether it's a harem or whether it's a large army, are essentially said to be bad. So it's really a kind of theological transformation uh, that's going on here. Um, And you can only understand that actually when you uh, see the book of Deuteronomy in this very context.
Um, so that's one reason why I think even for those who who consider the Hebrew Bible for themselves um, an authoritative text um, will profit actually from looking at these contexts. This is more impressive in a way to see it than mm -hmm. what, what happens here. It's really a rather revolutionary event uh, you can observe here than when you are totally ignorant of this um, kind of uh, historical context. Mm -hmm. And so some of the, um, one of the charges that I often see leveled at the Bible, Hebrew Bible, um, not by um, necessarily specialists, but by people who are doing their own research in their homes with, with whatever resources they have, um, is this identification of these similarities and then the assertion that actually the Bible is, is essentially plagiarizing earlier um, earlier texts, earlier traditions from other cultures. Uh, and I think, as you've said, the interesting thing that for me definitely makes the Hebrew Bible a much more fascinating work is knowing those connections and not viewing them as uh, simple plagiarism and, and copying, but as uh, a very creative adaptation and reworking of existing um, stereotypes, tropes, textual traditions into something that serves a completely new purpose. Yeah, I totally agree. And I mean, the, maybe the first, the, the most prominent example of, of parallels uh, between, in that case, the Mesopotamian literary text and the Hebrew Bible is the, is the flood story, which I mentioned earlier and has been observed ever since the 19th century. And it is indeed true that uh, the story that you find about the flood in the Gilgamesh tradition or in the uh, Babylonian Atram Khasis epic and the flood story in the Bible um, that they really show many, many similarities in, in, in detail. Uh, the, the shape of the ark, for example, is a kind of box, even though the, the measurements are not totally identical. Um, the fact that uh, when eventually uh, the waters recede, uh, yeah, that, that would be for later. Uh, you have, um, you, you have um, um, these birds um, that Noah in the Bible and Utanapishti in Atanvasis in the Babylonian version stand out. But there, for example, you see an interesting um, difference. Um, so in the Bible, the birds are first the raven um, who flutters back and forth and it's not really clear what he does. And then eventually you have three times a dove being sent out. Um, and eventually the dove doesn't return. In the Gilgamesh epic, uh, the birds are um, a dove, a swallow, and eventually a raven. The dove and the swallow return to the boat because the waters aren't yet receded enough, but the raven does not return. Um, so what has probably happened here it does seem as though, and that is something that uh, Andrew George in his edition of Gilgamesh has pointed out, that um, well, the, the sequence of birds in the Mesopotamian version makes makes sense. So um, the dove and the swallow are birds that, that nest near to human beings. So having them return to uh, Utanapishti, the flood hero, makes sense in this etiological sense that um, it explains the behavior of these birds. The raven does not return um, because he has found dry land somewhere. And ravens or crows would live far farther away from human beings. So that seems to be the, the rationale behind the sequence of the birds in the Gilgamesh epic. In the Bible, that is kind of lost. Mm -hmm. On other, okay, in, in, in other instances, however, the, the difference are very meaningful. So the biblical, the, the, the Mesopotamian flood story, um, and especially in uh, um very much presents the flood as an attempt at population control. Uh, so um, 
the gods are kind of annoyed by this overpopulation and the noise, especially that human beings are making noise is a very common uh, recurring phenomenon um, in the um, in Mesopotamian imagination. You just imagine these are people are living in in these uh, on these rivers nearby in in big cities, and and it certainly reflects the reality of a lot of people being all over the same place. Mm. In the Bible, um, you have two or three times actually God ordering Noah. In the context of the flood story, to be fruitful and multiply, which seems at first glance not really to be makes that much sense in this context. But at the end of the flood story, okay, he needs to make sure that there is again humanity around. But it's very, very pronounced in its in it being so different from uh, well, what you find here in the Babylonian tradition. So that I would again say this is this is kind of a very deliberate rewriting uh, essentially stating the opposite uh, of what you find in the Mesopotamian tradition if you think about the way that people in in, in Israel and Judah would live in these hilly places where uh, population density would actually be pretty low uh, you can see that there isn't really a great desire in in, in, in talking about it also mm -hmm. and having population control in the first place so it's a very deliberate um, rewriting um, of the earlier story I, I do think that it is clearly an example where the Bible draws on the Mesopotamian text. Uh, I think that that is really quite clear because the parallels are so specific. But as you say, it's not just a parallel, it's not just um, plagiarizing, it's really um, a creative adaptation. Mm -hmm. And that's what and, you find all over the place. Mm -hmm. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll have the conclusion to our interview with Dr. Edgard from Stay with us. Thousands of years ago, an ancient civilization made unprecedented technological advancements. The mysteries of this civilization can be found in their writings, buried away for thousands of years. Scholars have deciphered these ancient tablets, and now you can too. Learn to read ancient Sumerian, an introduction for complete beginners, is your guide to reading these writings from the ancient past. Get your copy today and begin reading this long-lost language tomorrow. Um, talking about um, creative adaptation, you sent me um, a comparison of the Enuma Elish and the opening of Genesis. Um, we've got about 15 minutes before we go to audience questions. Would you like to, to have a look at this? Yeah, I mean, maybe briefly, it's a little bit complicated, but because first lines are always so terribly important, and the first lines of the Hebrew Bible, of course, matter as well. So the first creation account in the Bible, um, where God creates the world in seven days, is of course one of the most famous stories ever told. Um, and it has been compared from early on to a Babylonian myth, the um, Babylonian epic of creation, also known as Enoma Elish. Um, the parallels, however, are not quite as pronounced as they are in the case of the flood stories. And so some people have been dismissed this and have said, okay, yes, there's water that plays a role and the earth is mentioned um, and, and, and God is kind of doing it. Uh, but that's what you find all over the place in, in, in creation accounts from China or wherever you look. Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, I can't prove um, that it's not like that, but... What I've worked on here is the very first lines, uh, which you see here, and you look at the at the translation. 
Um, and I have uh, highlighted in, 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 in bold type the parallels. Um, so it does seem as though both texts begin with, with, with a temporal clause, even though in the Bible it's not so clear. So in the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, heavens and earth, both mentioned in the first lines of the Babylonian epic of creation. Um, and uh, then it goes on that, um, well, um, the, uh, the earth was still formless void, darkness covering the face of the sea or the deep, Tehom, that could be the same thing as uh, Tiamat, uh, that is the sea, uh, which from which in the Babylonian text uh, all uh, creation emerges together from her and from her partner Apsu. In the Bible, of course, again, everything is just God, if you wish, but then you have this, uh, and then eventually there is the thing about that uh, the God spirit uh, or wind from God, Ruach sweeping over the face of the waters. The waters, again, men mentioned also in Enoma Elish. What I found rather remarkable is that you have this reference to the spirit of God, if this is what Ruach here really means. It's a complicated matter, but I think it's more likely a spirit than just simply a wind. Mm -hmm. And that is very similar to a weird phrase in line four of the Babylonian epic, Momo Tiamat. It's not just that the text here talks about this Tiamat, the embodiment of the sea, but he calls her Momo. And Momo throughout the epic is later is embodied, uh, but here it's kind of abstract. It's a creative spirit. It's it's uh, what what makes things uh, start to, to, to come into being. So for me, this looks very much like the Ruach Elohim, like uh, the spirit of God. Mm -hmm. And that is, of course, a very specific parallel. So here I would say you could argue if that's correct. And again, I mean, there are people who wouldn't believe that. But if this is really so, uh, then you would have an example where uh, the biblical authors, in this case, the priestly author, who uh, is, is usually credited with the first creation account in the Bible, really drew quite quite heavily on uh, a Babylonian epic that was widely circulating. We know that it was very popular um, that students would um, learn these lines by heart. We have lots of school texts from Mesopotamia where these lines are to be found. You can even find, find them in the Greek tradition in Eudemus, a student of Aristotle, who also um, uh, wrote about these very lines and about Tiamat and Apsu and even Momo. So it's not that unlikely, I would say, that um, they were very well known. And in that case, of course, there's a greater likelihood that biblical author might have drawn on them. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, just uh, briefly, again, before we go to audience questions, um, and you talked about this um, a little earlier also, why do you think, looking at the, the context of the Hebrew Bible and the other texts that, that surround us and inform it, why do you think that that's a relevant study today? Yeah, I mean... Uh... First of all, I mean, it's, it, there's a certain fun in finding these things, of course. Um, yes. And and I think, I mean, one thing that I believe, and pointed out when I talked about Deuteronomy, is that you simply cannot understand really what the biblical authors had in mind and why they were really so remarkable, unless you know this context. What were they doing here? They were doing something in response to something else. You have to imagine it's really kind of the imperial periphery writing back. There are these small kingdoms of, of Israel and then later Judah. There are these people who are then eventually sent to exile, the Judeans in 597, after the conquest of Jerusalem by the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar II. We know they were there. We actually have cuneiform tablets mentioning the last uh, Judean king, Jehoiakim, 
and his entourage being in Babylon, in the city of Babylon, in the in the palace of Nebuchadnezzar, where they would have encountered um, the um, these texts. I'm sure they must have texts like the Babylonian Epic of Creation, and also, of course, for example, the great architecture of Babylon. So, uh, in the primeval history, the first eleven chapters of uh, the Hebrew Bible, you find at the end the story, the famous story of the Tower of Babel. And I'm sure that this is uh, written in response to the experience of Nebuchadnezzar rebuilding that tower. Uh, and again, we know that these const this construction work was, was really massive and impressive. We have texts from the city of Uruk, according to which uh, work groups from Uruk were sent to Babylon to work there on Nebuchadnezzar's construction sites. Uh, at night, uh, to the to the light of torches, so this there were, were hundreds and thousands of people working at these sites. The Judeans must have seen that the ideology of Babylon was, of course, um, well, we are the center, the navel of the world. At that time, actually, they were. Uh, it was really mm -hmm. the, the center, um, and the tower here embodies that. Uh, it's this uh, centripetal message. Everything kind of uh, migrating towards Babylon, and again, the Bible. It's the opposite. The tower becomes the symbol of a confusion of tongues and of the people being dispersed all over the earth. So it's, it's, it's really a counter story. And you cannot understand the Bible unless you know that. In addition to that, I would also say that um, any kind of historical approach to religion, of course, is important because, I mean, it is to some extent, I would hope, an antidote to fundamentalism, which is a scourge of, of our, our time, wherever you look. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I believe in the Enlightenment project um, in which uh, modern scholarship and science, uh, I think, continues to be to be uh, uh, involved. Uh, in that regard, I have certain issues with, with some attempts by postmodernist philosophers to, to relativize everything. I do believe that there are certain things we can figure out that are actually correct and not, not open for discussion even in the, in the humanities. But I would also at the same time say why I see it so from that perspective as an enlightenment project, as a kind of critical project that puts into question, of course, but I mean, that's nothing new, the historicity of the Bible, which doesn't necessarily mean it puts into question its authority. That's why everyone else decides. But I would also say that I'm kind of um, not particularly impressed by by these neo-atheist attempts, Richard Dawkins or people like that, to simply say that the Bible is terrible, it's just a, a, an awful book of full of nonsense, and 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 and, and modern natural sciences show that it's it's worthless. This, of course, is is completely insufficient. Uh, the Bible has been enormously powerful. It has for for two thousand years uh, shaped the world, uh, and it has shaped the world for a reason because it is a very fascinating. Uh, book a collection of texts that all in their own right um, are are extremely exciting and I mean we could talk about many others where I could show um, strange and interesting parallels whether it's the book mm -hmm. of Jonah where I think you find such or the story of Joseph or whatever but um, the book of Job and um, but um, I think that's also something I, I, I when I teach my class for example I make that very clear this isn't just about proving the Bible wrong this is the last thing I, I want to do this is not the point. Dr. Fromm, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thank you. It was, it was a pleasure for me too. Have a good weekend. Yeah, you too. Uh, and everybody, thank you for joining us. If you're listening after the live recording, please remember you can see a calendar of our live streams on our website if you wish to join us live next time.
That's www.digitalhammurabi.com forward slash calendar. And until next time, resist poor scholarship. Always ask, how do you know that? <laughs> <laughs>